people, what's up? Thank you for checking us out, Real Not Rude. Don't forget that you can find us on Facebook and Twitter under Real Not Rude and on Instagram under Keep It Real Not Rude. Also, we are on all the platforms. Our podcast is on Amazon as well as Audibles. We are on Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts, and of course, Spotify Podcasts. Please, you guys, follow us on social media, like, share, engage, you know, follow us, please, so that our audience can grow and pass the word. In addition, we also still do our shows where we have the discussions on relationships, friendships, situationships, whatever. And if you would like to be a part of that, definitely shoot us an email. All you need to join is your email address and your name and only your first name or even a nickname. Drop us a discussion that you would like to go over and we will definitely get back to you and let you know if it's something we can include. That's at keepitrealnotrude at gmail.com. Once again, you guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Be safe and check us out. We are back, real not rude, with another podcast on when friends go wrong. This one is about a young girl, just a misguided young girl that didn't get an opportunity to set her path straight because of the people around her and how it um, ended up impacting her life, unfortunately. So let's get started. And we're just going to really focus on only her name, um, Because we'll talk about, of course, the names of the other offenders in the story, but this isn't one of those cases where it's just two people one-on-one involved. This is a collective of um, different people involved. So you'll understand as we go along. But this young lady's name, her name was Rena Burke. And so I want to give you a little history so that you understand the beginning of some of her issues. Her mom was Indo-Canadian, and then her dad was an Indian immigrant. And the reason that's being brought up is because she was being raised uh, with her other um, two siblings in a middle-class suburb, and it was predominantly white in an upper-class neighborhood. So in school, she looked different, and she was a different race than most everyone that was there. And so it made it hard for her. She really wanted acceptance. So around that time in middle school, she started acting out and picking fights at home. And so her parents didn't know what was going on. But then they found out that she was being bullied since she started this new school. And so they thought that maybe she was slipping into depression. So they made a choice. In 1994, May of 1994, they moved. And then they transferred her to another school. And the hopes was that at this new school, maybe the bullying would stop and things would get better. And at first it seemed like it did. It worked. She got more social. She met a new friend. And she was happy. But then this new friend turned on her, started shunning her, and then the bullying started again. And so once again, Rena started getting sad and distraught and depressed. So in 1996, she graduated from this school. And so she started attending middle school. So now really think about, we're going into adolescence. So this brings about a lot of emotional and hormonal changes. So she met a new group of friends at our new school and 
she felt like they were the cool kids because they have limited restrictions. They could stay out past their curfew, drink and smoke. And she didn't have a lot of freedom. She really wanted it, but she didn't have it because her parents, she considered, were strict. But this new group, she felt like they really accepted her, like she finally belonged. And so the more her parents disapproved, the more she acted out. And her father especially really tried to reason with her that these kids are not good for you. They're bad association for you. So now in 1996, when she was 13, one of her new friends told her, if you really want to get out of your parents' home, it's easy. Just tell the police they're abusing you and you can go to foster care. Now, this kind of tells you the type of friendships or the type of relation, the type of children that she's associated with. More than likely, these are children who already come from troubled backgrounds. For them to even know that this is the avenue that you would go to be to get taken out of your parents' home. And see, unfortunately, Rena comes from a more structured background. So that's not unfortunate. The unfortunate part is that by her being naive and being influenced, she actually did it. She reported her parents for physical abuse. But see, there was no evidence, so they weren't charged. So she had to stay home. However, her grandparents took her away from the home for a few months because they believed her. They believed that this story was true. So when she got with her grandparents, she went as far as to say that in addition to being physically abused, that her dad was sexually abusing her. Now, he was devastated. I mean, that's a big accusation, right? So in 1997, of course, he was arrested for sexual abuse and put into jail. Now, while he was awaiting arraignment, Rena decided, let me tell the truth. So she told the authorities, I lied. I'm sorry, I lied. So he was cleared. Her father was cleared. But he did write about this later. And he said in his book, he wrote a book and he said, I now believe Rena must manipulate it. Rena manipulated social workers and family alike. It was killing me that no one believed us and everyone seemed to accept Rena's stories. Now, I understand how he felt since he was innocent, but you cannot dismiss the accusations of a child and put them back into an environment that's dangerous for them. You have to take it seriously and do a full investigation and be sure. So I understand the steps that had to be taken. So... It was about this time that Rena started saying she didn't want to be at her grandparents' home either. She was uncomfortable. So she went to foster care, which is where she was trying to go in the first place. In foster care, she met new friends. And this is when she started acting out more. You know, she was acting like these new friends, smoking all the time. And they said constantly talking about gangs and even claiming she was in a gang. But eventually, she started noticing there's rules here, too. There's curfews, chores. You know, I don't like it because there's rules everywhere. There's rules in prison, right? Everywhere. So she apologized to her parents, and she went home. But she decided again, you know what? I'm back, but I don't like it. I want to get out of here. So she left. She left her parents' home, and she went to a youth shelter. So once again, she's placed in the government's care. Now, this strenuous relationship between her moms, her, their dad, the social workers, government officials, you know, you can tell she's a confused teenager in and out of the home, choosing to go to this, the foster care. 
but she just wanted to fit in with these friends and she wanted to be with them. And so, you know, she felt like her parents were too strict. They were overprotective. They weren't cool. And to her, it was more important to do anything to get the approval of her peers. Not to mention that middle school is like a really draining time for young people because of all of the hormonal changes and the emotional changes and, you know, they're developing and learning who they are. And so dealing with that in adolescence, which is hard, in addition, now you're dealing with the issues of being peer pressured and also bullied. So that was probably quite a bit. Now, on November 14th of 1997, it was a Friday. And so she was staying at her home, at her parents' home for an overnight visit. Her parents, her, uh, while they had her here, had her at their home, she was invited to a party. And so she went to the party with her friends and it was like behind a school. But the police came and broke it up. I don't know if it was because it was too rowdy or maybe they weren't supposed to be there. But they relocated to a nearby Craig Flower Bridge. So at about 1040, it was about 20 minutes before her curfew, she called her parents and said she would be on her way home. Now, at the Craig Flower Bridge, she was like with a group of kids, teenagers, and they were drinking and smoking marijuana or whatever. Then all of a sudden, out of the blue, several of the girls that were there, they were known as the Shoreline Six, started gathering around her and beating her. I mean, abusing her to the point that they're putting cigarettes out on her forehead. And the only reason they stopped beating her is because one girl finally said, stop. And it's probably, I imagine it must've been so extreme for her to say, you know, stop. Because if you're just a bystander standing there watching and going along with it, and then you say, stop, you realize not only is it not okay in the first place, this is getting serious. And that's what I'm assuming happened. And according to other people that were there, they said it was unprovoked, like this attack was out of the blue. But fortunately, because this young lady said to stop, she was, Rena was able to escape. So she tried to get away, but two other kids that were present, Kelly and Warren, they followed her. So when they followed her, they dragged her to the other side of the Craig Flower Bridge and they beat her a second time. But this time, they were holding her head under the water until she died. Then, after they killed her, they took off her sweater and shoes and then just rolled her into the water. Now, at this point, Rena's curfew had come and gone. And then her parents, they were super worried because she said she was on her way home. They thought maybe she had gone to her grandparents' home. So they, they called her, but she wasn't there. So then maybe, you know, they called the group home to see if maybe she was there. She wasn't there. So they called one of her friends. And then the friend said that when she left the party at 11 o'clock, that Rena was still at that party. So the next day, her parents called the police. But because of her history, you know, run uh, with the, um, the foster care, the youth shelter, the false accusations, they refused to classify her as a missing person and they just consider her a runaway. So by Monday at the local high school, rumors start circulating about her, about, well, they didn't specify it was her, but they, it was about a beating and a body floating in the nearby waterway. Now the rumors weren't just being told by the students. Students heard it, but also teachers heard it. 
But no one told the police until November 21st. Because, see, this group, this gang, the Shoreline Six, they had made this pact to not rat each other out. You know, typical gang behavior. But what happened was an eyewitness did make a statement to the police. And the statement was that they saw Carrie and Warren follow Rena after the beating. So now a whole week after she had been reported missing, despite the witnesses, and that's including the students and the teachers, hearing the rumors of what happened, they finally start the investigation. Now, it's unclear if the teachers reported anything they heard to the police, which as an adult, even if you think it's not true, you should report it. But what is clear is that a student is the one who came forward to the police, and that's how the police got involved. So now, November 21st of 1997, Warren and Carrie were arrested, and they were charged with murder and aggravated assault. The remaining members of the Shoreline Six girls faced aggravated assault charges as well. But because it's the law, the Canada's Young Offenders Act, their identities were able to be protected. On November 22nd, the police started doing a search. So they flew a helicopter over the Craigflower Bridge area, but they couldn't see anything. So then they did a ground search, and that's where they found a body in the weeds. And the body was positively identified as Rena Burke. The coroner said that her death was caused by the drowning, but it said that her internal injuries were comparable to someone who had been in a car accident. So the coroner even testified later that even if she hadn't drowned, she probably wouldn't have survived her brain injuries. So in February of 1998, Three of the Shoreline Six girls pleaded guilty to assault and causing bodily harm. Now, the remaining three girls went to trial and were convicted of assault and causing bodily harm, too. And their, their sentencing faces, I'm sorry, that sentencing that they faced, it varied from 60 days to like a one-year jail sentence. In April 1999, Warren, his trial began. And so by June, he was convicted of second degree murder and given a life sentence. But since he was a minor at the time of the murder, he was eligible for parole after serving seven years in prison. So now during his prison time, he did some research and discovered the group, a first nationals people in Canada. And because of this, he was able to incorporate his tribe elders into his parole processes. And so that included restorative justice acts, and it was several acts. And that involved with him meeting with Rena's family. So he tried to make peace with his actions and take accountability. So in July of 2006, he received an unescorted temporary absence from jail. And, and then in June of 2010, he was released on full parole. And so Rena's family didn't contest the parole request 
because they felt he was remorseful. You know, he came to them and he tried to set things straight. But Carrie, she was 15 years old when she murdered Rena. So her lawyer requested to have her case tried in youth court. But the support, the Supreme Court of Canada denied it because the level of violence seemed so extreme and it seemed like it was a lack of remorse. So she was convicted first of second degree murder in March of 2000, but it was overturned in February of 2003 because the court said that she wasn't given a fair trial. So then she was freed on bail pending her appeal after serving 18 months of her life sentence. Now, a month later, while she's on bail, she was charged with assault causing bodily harm after beating a 58-year-old woman in a Vancouver park. So they revoked her bail, and she was sent back to prison in March of 2004. Now, in June of 2004, she had a new trial. Now, at this trial, witnesses came forward claiming that she bragged about killing Rena, and Warren claimed that he watched Carrie drown Rena, even though Carrie's lawyer said that Warren had been lying multiple times during the initial statements to the police and during the trial. Now, during her trial, Carrie admitted to punching Rena because she thought she was going to hurt her friends, but denies murdering her. And she claimed that Warren and two other girls killed Rena. She also was reported saying, I'm obviously going to be convicted. You've got what you want. My life is ruined. So she showed no remorse for her actions. Her life is ruined and she murdered someone. And she also didn't admit that she orchestrated the attack. So she takes no accountability. So now in this trial, the jury was out for five days. But in July of 2004, the judge declared it a mistrial because it was a deadline. So now, in February of 2005, it's a new trial for Carrie. But this time, the star witness is her accomplice, Warren. And he testified against her. And he said that she beat Rena and then left Rena dead in the water. Now, on April 12th of 2005, Carrie was convicted of secondary murder for a second time. And then she was sentenced to life in prison with no eligibility of parole for seven years. Now, you would think that's the end of it, but it wasn't. Because in September of 2008, the B.C. Court of Appeal overturned her second-degree conviction and ordered a fourth trial on the grounds that the judge from her third trial gave the jury wrong instructions of her testimony. But the Supreme Court of Canada upheld her conviction of second-degree murder in June of 2009. So finally, the case ended. The lengthy case was over. Now, in 2017 and in 2019, she was granted overnight leaves and extended day parole. The Parole Board of Canada continued to grant her day parole on July 4th of 
14th of 2021. Now, this caused the media to go crazy because she received a life sentence, but she was she served most of it on day parole. And now, even since that, she's changed her name and had two children with her spouse, got married, while out on day parole. The only good thing is she maintained her parole's conditional orders which was staying away from drugs and alcohol and not contacting the Burke's family, Rena's family. Now here's the question. No one knows why did they beat and kill Rena in the first place? And there were different rumors. One said it was a revenge because she lived in the group home with one of the girls or two of the girls involved and that they accused her of stealing one of their phone books and calling people starting rumors. Then the second was one girl said she stole her boyfriend. So it was over stupidity, basically. So in 2000, Rena's parents sued the teenagers involved and the British Columbia government and other parties that were involved for slacking. And what they said was, society doesn't make people take responsibility for their actions. This is one way to make them responsible. And that's what Rena's father said basically hit the pockets so they can fill it. So this murder, it prompted nationwide conversations about racism and bullying, especially by girls, you know? And so after Rena's death, her parents started anti-bullying campaigns and inclusion programs, and they pushed back at the British Columbia schools to implement anti-bullying measures. And so they began speaking out to students and teachers and law enforcement professionals. So because of their work in 2009, they were honored with um, the British Columbia's Award of Distinction for their crime prevention and community safety efforts. In 2012, Rena's mother spoke about her daughter's death and the impact that it has on young people with all this bullying. And this is what she said. For so long, we were consumed with the legalities of dealing with our murdered child, the courts prolonging the cases. And it's kind of like you put your feelings and your grief on hold. And I'm finding that now I'm feeling more of the impact of losing Rena, the emotions and feelings. So actually, I'm struggling more now and missing her more. I'm sad to say that the severity and frequency of bullying are increasing instead of decreasing. And also, I think we're all shocked by the means that young people are using to bully their peers with cyberbullying and texting and all these things that were not there when Rena was killed. This is so true because it's not even young people that's bullying with these new avenues. I mean, online bullying is adults as well. And this story is so sad because this young girl seemed to have a solid foundation, but she had people misleading her who it sounds like didn't have a foundation or a good background. And so she was just misled going through growing pains. But it's likely that had she been given the opportunity when she matured, she probably would have come full circle because of her background and her upbringing. It's just another tragic story of trusting and believing the people around you are for you, but they're against you.
So it's another story of when friends go wrong. Thanks for listening, you guys. Check us out. We're Real Not Rude on Facebook and Twitter. Keep It Real Not Rude on Instagram. Or you can email us at keepitrealnotrude at gmail.com. Be safe.